0: Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy Podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Susan Hunt-Stevens. Susan is the founder and CEO of WeSpire, an award-winning employee experience technology platform focused on engaging people in purpose-driven initiatives ranging from sustainability to social impact, holistic well-being, and inclusive cultures. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. I'm delighted to have you here.
1: It is great to be here, wonderful to meet you today.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, really looking forward to this conversation. You have such an interesting company and tell us what WeSpire does. I mean, I I looked at various things online and you talk about transforming cultures and the fact that you're engagement and tech experts. Tell us more about, about what you do and why is that impactful?
1: Absolutely. So, WeSpire, at its core, is a technology company. Uh, We've designed a platform that is used primarily by large, forward-thinking global companies to engage their employees in purpose-based initiatives. The four core initiatives that we power are sustainability initiatives, so getting employees to save energy, wastewater, and fuel at work and at home, Social impact programs, which include volunteering, um, giving, community engagement, well-being, and we take a very holistic approach to our well-being module. It doesn't just cover fitness and healthy eating, but also meditation and mindfulness, family work-life balance, financial well-being, and then inclusive culture. And inclusive culture does a lot around diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also has a very strong emphasis around improving psychological safety in the workplace. And psychological safety uh-huh. has been demonstrated to be one of the things that is most critical to high-performing teams. Yeah. Thank, you, thank you, Google, right. for doing two years of work <laughs> on this and proving that. Right. Um, and that's what we try to uh, encourage are those behaviors that create psychologically safe workplaces.
0: Hmm. I haven't heard any, anyone really focus on that issue of psychological safety. I'm aware of the research and how important it is, and it makes perfect intuitive sense as well when you think about it, that people aren't going to engage authentically if they're, um, and, and that includes every aspect of working within a company, unless they feel that they're safe to do so. And Absolutely. that's not true of some companies.
1: Well, and most companies have no idea if they're uh, psychologically safe or not and if so how psychologically safe how that is relative to other companies in their sector or in their town and they also don't know who is psychologically safe and who maybe isn't feeling psychologically safe and so what we find uh, we actually um, help companies when they're first getting started with an assessment and are able to bring them really rich information about um, not only who is feeling safe and who isn't feeling safe Uh, But what is driving that sense of safety? um, And it can fall into two areas. Um, Sometimes it's policies and practices in the company itself. um, But other times it's really just the behaviors of how people, um, you know, treat each other. And that doesn't mean that people are being treated poorly always what it just can mean is, you know, that there's a very dominant, aggressive, extrovert style that makes it so people who don't have that style don't feel safe to speak up in meetings or things like that. So Mm -hmm. getting a read on that is really, really powerful because then companies can then figure out what behavioral programs do we want to run to improve psychological safety and what policies and practices do we need to rethink to improve psychological safety.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm in my observation and i worked 10 years in corporate so in a large global company and then i've been a founder of four different companies too and i my in my experience people tend to manage out of at least partially out of their lived experience in a family setting oh, and interesting. that can be yeah it can be a tough thing to undo because you have certain attitudes about how you approach people and the whole uh, issue of authority comes into play. Um, yeah, it sounds like that's, that's um, maybe an area that isn't really highly viewed, but I think from a psychological standpoint, it has a, it has a big, um, it has a big impact. So I think their training can do so, can, can do so much, but it's also personality and, and your previous experience. I, I'm, uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So the family connection is not shocking to me at all. So much of our mm-hmm. behavior is learned behavior. And who do we learn from? We learn yeah. from, you know, those we grow up with and live with and model from a parent side and the community side. True. We know humans are most influenced in terms of behavior by the social norms that they're exposed to. Uh, what we certainly see is that uh, the behaviors that leaders model can have a very, very strong impact on a culture. And and so you could have somebody who maybe came from, you know, a more psychologically safe parenting style and relationship, but if they wind up in a company or a team or a culture where clearly other behaviors are valued and rewarded and incented, you know, that person will um, do one of two things. They will either change their behavior to model that Culture, or they will leave. Um, you know, and in the middle, there's usually a lot of suffering. And so, you know, the the um, you know what there is a lot of what I would call sorting. That you know, maybe it's like the sorting hat in Harry Potter, of people who you know sort of figure out and find those cultures that really work with their personalities. But humans are very adaptable. And so, what what we experience is when there's leadership transition or an intentional effort to improve culture or change culture. What often happens is that uh, the new regime will try to undo some of the toxic things from a previous regime, but nobody really trusts that all these things are real because they're trying Mm -hmm. to watch the people who used to behave one way, who are now trying to behave another way and asking, is this authentic? And so what happens is you could have very, progressive uh leader who's very much trying to model psychological safety but if they're not really working closely with those that operated in a very different way under very different leaders to build that sense of authenticity and trust you have people underneath who are watching and saying i'm not sure i'd buy it
0: right yeah and i know i know you wrote recently in your blog about whole foods and an issue arising there where uh, the company Amazon, the umbrella company that owns Whole Foods came out with a very strong statement in favor of Black Lives Matter. And then uh, when staff members at Whole Foods wore Black Lives Matter masks in support of Black Lives Matter, uh, then they were censured and told they couldn't do that. And there's this whole issue of consistency. I mean, you're making this public stand and then you're um Going in and on the on the floor in on the on the ground, basically, you're doing something that kind of flies in the face of that, and I think that can undermine trust and belief that things really can shift.
1: Absolutely, and the the Whole Foods case is fascinating. Um, and what I would contrast it to is a company who started out on a very similar path but really realized quickly that they were about to really blow it with their employees and did a complete about face, which was Starbucks. So similar situation where Starbucks uh, had come out very much in support of Black Lives Matter um, and then employees wore Black Lives Matter gear to work and were told that was against the dress code and the uniform and they couldn't do it the employees complained, and instead of being fired or dismissed, um, you know, uh, or sent home, the company actually not only reversed their policy quickly, but then offered to provide any employee who wanted it a Black Lives Matter t-shirt that was still conformed with their brand and their dress code, but gave every employee the opportunity to wear one. Um, So there's two companies who started out with a similar inconsistency between what they're wanting to do from a corporate support standpoint around an impact issue or topic. And it didn't get, you know, the I's didn't get totted and the T's didn't cross about, okay, well, if we're going to support Black Lives Matter as a corporation, does that mean we're going to address our dress code policies and, you know, modify them or clarify them? They both have that problem one has taken, you know, at least here in, in Massachusetts, um, I don't even believe it's been resolved, uh, you know, that there's still not, you know, there's, you cannot wear that gear. Um, and mm. the, uh, but Starbucks, they're giving employees, they're paying for our employees mm. to have the choice to wear that gear. They're not forcing employees to wear that. And I don't think you should ever should yeah. as a company force people right. to display, you know, support for an organization just because you do. Um, but mm-hmm. the, um, but you know you're giving people the choice, and you're enabling and empowering a choice
0: right yeah and and Starbucks has some work to do itself because of the issue of uh folks uh, I think two black guys came into a Starbucks and the yeah know, staff no Starbucks has
1: had some very similar a... issues, as you said, um you know, and they um after that situation in Philadelphia, which was egregious, uh, they shut the whole company for a day to really try to focus mm-hmm. on these behaviors. But it does get back to this issue of how critical behavior is um, and how critical inclusive yeah. behavior is. But how, you know, did I went through 16 years of schooling, did I ever have a class that was focused on inclusive behavior? No. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure most people did. Yeah. Um You know, in in, even in I was a you know um, chief chief marketing executive for a very large publicly traded media company, and we had very good training programs around um, different topics and areas. uh, But it wasn't until very very towards the you know maybe ninth year I was there. And I went to the first program that really got to behavior and, and what, you know, inclusive behavior looks like and what exclusive mm-hmm. behavior looks like.
0: Yeah. And it's quite nuanced mm-hmm. when you it get is. down Absolutely. into it. It's, it's not necessarily obvious, especially when you're a member of the privileged group that doesn't, uh, isn't at the receiving end of some of the behaviors.
1: Absolutely. And privileged groups can and obviously be on different receiving ends, but it's also an interesting in the, in the work we did at that media company, one of the things we found that was, uh, that was really a big, you know, the framework they used was in, a, in the house, out of the house behavior um, mm-hmm. was, was that we were actually pretty good with women and underrepresented minorities where there was a massive um, exclusivity factor was between represented employees and non-represented employees and that you know really caused the company to step back and say, "Wow, we've really got an issue that we need to tackle from an inclusivity standpoint around our culture. That um, you know we shouldn't we shouldn't have people feeling like they're being treated incredibly differently because they're a member of a union."
0: Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I know that um, your work tends to. Revolve somewhat at least around behavior change and using different methodologies to influence behavior. And I know that um, you know Starbucks, or, sorry, not Starbucks, Facebook has been called out in terms of their trying to create certain behaviors. And you know where's the line there between influencing behavior for the greater good versus getting into this realm of manipulation, which Facebook's been accused of?
1: Yeah, it's a really fascinating question, and um, it's a question near and dear to our hearts, in part because the model for behavior change that we use in our work uh, was pioneered by a gentleman named BJ Fogg at the Stanford mm-hmm. Persuasive Technology Lab, um, and it's a really powerful model about using imp- increasing people's ability to do something and then their motivation to do something and then putting nudges and triggers at the right time in the right place to do it. And uh, Instagram, uh, the founder of Instagram, was one of his students. Um, And so many of these, um, many of his techniques and tactics that he taught were experimented in Silicon Valley and technology companies. Um, And they Mm -hmm. show up in video games, and they show up in social platforms, and they show up in websites. Um, And there is certainly, uh, you know, these, these tactics work, they absolutely work. And they have, they work to get people to uh, visit websites. Um, I learned a lot about behavioral, um, you know, change, uh, get trying to get people to visit websites when I was the head of marketing of one of the world's largest websites, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, get people to click on ads and all of this. And it was really when I founded We Spire was the idea of, you know, all of this behavioral integration and technology could be channeled for good. It could be used to help us close that gap, which is a giant gap between intent and action for all these things that we all Mm want to do, but it's just really hard to do them. So most people want to be healthier. Most people want to be more sustainable. Most people want to be kinder and nicer and more included and to feel more connected to people. You know, um, mm-hmm. most people want to volunteer and give at least some in their community. And but we just don't do it. Um, we get stuck in these patterns and these habits, um, or more importantly, we don't have habits or patterns that get us to do these things. And so. The question when I founded the company was, could all of these techniques that we're using to get people to visit websites and, you know, play video games longer and click on ads, could they be used for the greater good? And could you use this? Um, and we've proven that the answer is yes, um, that these can get people to save energy, waste and water. This can get people to give and volunteer more. This can get people to, you know, be more inclusive. And this is a great thing. Uh, but Nir Eyal, who's one of the more influential writers in the space about technology and building great products, um, you know, dedicated a whole chapter of his book. And it is a big, you know, which is where, you know, where does this go from being you know, a good thing, however, it's being used, you know, um, to, to being a problem. And as a mother of, you know, a teenage boy who plays some video games with his friends, I see how addictive it is. And,
0: you know, and
1: and he is very unlucky to have a very educated mother about these things, because (laughs) I know what he has to turn off. And I know where the limits need to be just to help to ensure that there isn't, you know, the brain chemical triggers that are happening um, when you reach new levels and reach new things, you know, you want to monitor those and you want to do them at the right time in the right place. Um, And you have to be careful around it.
0: Especially for kids and teenagers and for adults too. It seems like the question at its core, yeah, at its core really is how do you maintain agency while um, nudging people towards what you see as positive behaviors or what the company sees in the case of companies that hire you?
1: Yeah. Well, so the first part of the agency is no, not, not one of our clients makes any of these programs mandatory. Um, You know, there can be, there can be recognitions for participating. There can be rewards for participating, you know, certainly, Hmm. Um, but very, very few of our programs, um, have required participation as a component. So agency Mm -hmm. comes just to start with by, am I going to choose to do these things or am I not? Um, Mm -hmm. and it, you know, I don't want to, I don't have to. And so, um, now that said, (laughs) you know, when everyone around you is doing it and your manager is talking about it, is there pressure and social norming to do it? Yes. It's why it works, you know, um, but, but you, you don't have to. Um, I think the second thing is you don't have to do everything that is part of a program. you can you choose your own adventure is the the way we look at it. And so even with you when you do choose to um, participate in, let's say, a company sustainability program, you might choose to participate in something that's related to you know pause on plastic, for example, and to to be able to Reduce plastic, but you're just not going to tackle home energy. It's just not where your interest is or it's just you don't feel, feel like you have agency to do anything about it because you rent, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's another way is to be able to pick and choose from the different programs and the different campaigns that are being offered by the company. Um, so there's two levels of choice, um, at least in, yeah. in how we do our work.
0: Sure. Well, also presumably for companies, unless you're coming in cold from uh without having any of these programs in place, when people choose to work for a company, it's I mean the research is really strong right now that um, they're choosing it partly because these companies have this kind of focus of oh, sustainability absolutely. and social impact. So there's a there's a, a choice being made right there. That, um for sure. them actively for sure. mean, yeah.
1: the The research is is very strong on um, particularly, I mean, I think it's all ages, but particularly millennials and Gen Z Mm -hmm. will not work for a company that they don't think shares their values. Now, what's interesting is that then it gets into, well, what are your values? And so there are certainly companies that... you know, um, there's certainly companies who have very much embraced impact values and put that front and center. And that's really, really powerful to people to choose to work there. But they've also been able to prove and we've been helping companies prove that it really has big impact on retention and performance. And there's a very strong connection between um, impact programs and retention and likely to recommend the company. But there are other, um, there are other companies who, you know, choose not to run these and have a very different approach to it. Um, and as long as they're being authentic to their values and clear with their employees as to why they've chosen to, that this isn't just how we are going to choose to operate, you know, that could be appealing to certain people and that's okay. You know, um, not every company has to decide that they're going to be a force for good in this world. I, I wish they all would, but um but certainly the leaders have to decide how they want to think about their purpose in this world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and there's research too that um, kind of late baby boomers, folks that are still um, out there in the workforce are uh, also really interested in their legacy and they're equally interested in seeing that companies they work with are having a a positive impact. So kind of getting it on, on both ends of the age spectrum.
1: Yes, and as a Gen Xer, I'm sort of like, all right, yes, it's because we're probably exhausted and homeschooling our children right now. (laughs) But I think we dare, too. Ah. (laughs) We
0: just aren't used to...
1: You know, this wasn't taught in business school. You know, I have an MBA. I got it in 1998. And this was not a conversation that was happening. And as a leader being taught to run businesses, you were not being taught. Maybe there was an elective on social responsibility at the time. But if there was, I don't even remember it. And, you know, and that wasn't because it wasn't happening in companies. It just wasn't seen as part of the formula for successful business. That is totally transformed. You know, every single MBA program now has a very strong aspect around impact, you know, whether that's ESG or impact investing or, you know, startups that are going to be B Corps or, you know, how large corporations can define purpose and have impact. And so I think we're in the middle of just a whole rethinking about the role of business in society right now. And I think in many ways, these large global companies have an advantage because they can coordinate and operate globally with a lot less friction than when you're trying to get things done between 300 different countries, Um, you know? And so they see issues that have global impact like COVID, like climate change and things like that. Companies are actually better positioned to tackle efficiently and effectively, you know, they would be certainly helped by more coordinated global policies and that would accelerate everything. Um, but it's hard to get 300 con- countries to coordinate effectively, as we've all seen.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I think that it's, I, I too have seen that shift in my own work around impact. It's really fascinating to see how large corporations are <clears throat> kind of jumping on the bandwagon as far as that goes. Whether or not that's uh, uh, infused across the board is another question, but it, it really demonstrates that it's become a major consideration for companies in uh, and the ones that actually implement it and infuse impact throughout are really making a difference which is so encouraging and valuable. Well more importantly they're doing
1: they're yeah. they're doing better. I think that's the other thing. Not only are they making a yes. difference but they're actually performing yes. better and we've seen this in COVID, yes. that the companies who have strong ESG underpinnings are performing better through COVID than those who don't. Uh, and so I think that's the other piece of this is is that we're in this shift where it was perceived previously as the right thing to do. And now it's being perceived mm-hmm. as the smart thing to do if you want to run a successful business.
0: Right. Yeah. And thank you for, for bringing that forward because I, I know there's research to support that too, that companies that are impact focused are more profitable. They are, uh, they have higher revenue, and by orders of magnitude, it's not a it's not a tiny incremental shift. So um, uh, yeah, I'm excited about what the future holds as far as people embracing that aspect as well. I know that, uh, and I mean, you have uh, a tech background, you are really, We Spire is really into measuring these initiatives and making sure they work. And I did a a podcast interview with um, Anne May Chang, who wrote a book called Lean Impact. And her focus from going from Silicon Valley, she worked at Google and and another company, I can't recall at the moment, but uh, she wrote this book mainly for nonprofits, but talking about measuring impact and talk about why you think that's so important
1: well, it gets back to the conversation we were having about proving that these programs aren't just the right thing to do, but that they're the smart thing to do. Which is that ultimately, you know, you companies um, have goals and outcomes um, that they are trying to hit, and they need to rationalize, you know, spreading resources across different things. And if my experience in companies is the right thing to do can get funded, but usually not. Um, extensively and usually not staffed extensively mm-hmm. and is usually trying and it to, gets,
0: yeah, go it ahead. Gets, it's, it gets dumped as soon as there's a, a, some financial pressure has been historically what's happened.
1: Exactly. And um, what people have come to realize about these programs is that you don't, the reason you do them Uh, is because it unlocks these business benefits that have been previously hidden or, or unattainable. And as every company is trying to, you know, really push the frontier, there's not as much opportunity in lean manufacturing or efficiency as there used to be or better optimization of hotel rooms or airline seats. You know, those things have been studied and sort of optimized to death. The grass The the greatest opportunity is how do we get more of our people? Because, you know, one of the the just horrifying statistics is, is, you know, around engagement and disengagement and how a majority of workers are not engaged. Um, And so if you can solve that, if you can solve this last frontier of opportunity by having a highly engaged workforce, you know, you're going to go frogs over a competitor or, you know, and win in a new market relative to people who don't because you're, you're going to be more innovative. You're going to be more efficient. You're going to be more collaborative. You're going to have a lower turnover. You're going to be smarter about things. I mean, you're just going to do better. And so as, um you know, I, I just think it's this, this huge opportunity um, to combine, you know, both the power that impact has in terms of innovation and, you know, and opportunity for business with the, the sort of last frontier of optimization, which is how do we get and optimize our, our workforce impact. Um, and you put those two things together and there's this really, really strong Venn diagram because employees want to feel like they have a sense of purpose at work. They want to feel good about what they do. Mm-hmm. They want to feel like they're, you know, can pursue new ideas. And, um, and that's what these programs unlock and enable.
0: Well, and there's a huge societal benefit there for people if they feel fulfilled, then they can have their own uh, things that they work on and have impact with and uh, that whole realm of engagement. Well, I think uh, so that if you've, ever
1: had, if you've ever had a job you hated, um, which I'm sure all of us have, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. were, you, were you really nice to your roommates or your family when you got home every day from right. work? Probably not. If your boss was mean to you, Mm -hmm. do you sometimes end up taking it out on some poor person who, you know, was just trying to serve you dinner at a restaurant, (laughs) you know? And so, um, and so also when you think about if you, you know, if you feel really, um, you know, you feel like you can show up every day at work as yourself and your best self, you're going to also be your best self at home and you're going to be your
0: best self in the community. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm curious about what led you to find, to, to found WeSpire because you started off in news and information with a, a, an online platform and then you started practically green, which became WeSpire. And what, how did you, that's an unusual path. How did you come <laughs> to that?
1: Yeah, so the the thread that actually goes through it all is is behavior change. Um, and so, you know, in my role at the New York Times Company, uh, one of the things that I did is I authored one of the first white papers on behavioral advertising on the internet, um, and mm-hmm. was very involved in our launch of bringing um, one of the big subsidiaries, Boston.com, onto Facebook when they first opened Facebook to um, companies uh through a program that was called beacon now it would be facebook pages essentially and got a real sense for you know what um power there was going to be when we were all connected to each other and when we were all connected to companies in a very different way um so got a really early glimpse of that in my tech world life while at home um i had a at the time he was two and he ate a cashew. We ended up in the emergency room. And um, to get him healthy, I started how to, to read labels and understand what was in food. And then he tested for high lead levels and had to understand the indoor air quality. And so I got super passionate about health and sustainability and actually went back to grad school at night and did a degree in sustainable design at the Boston Architectural College. And uh, while I was sitting in one of those classes, I was like, you know, there's an app to help me be fit. And there's apps to help me run better, bike more, things like that, but there's no app to help me be more sustainable. And I'm trying to be more sustainable. So I did research to see if there was anything that was similar. And there were, you know, some really early nascent efforts that were happening, but there wasn't really anything that was big around this. And so that was the original vision for the company is an app to help people be healthier and more sustainable in their personal life. And that was practically green. What I didn't expect was that two years later, companies would come calling and say, asking if we had an enterprise version. And then when we started talking to them and building enterprise versions of Practically Green, that their definition of sustainability was just broader. You know, it didn't just include environment, um, the green part. It also included social impact and other other programs. Um, you know, one of our first clients was Unilever, and well-being was a big component of their sustainability, uh, their sustainable living plan strategy. So. We had to be much broader, and that's when we rebranded the company as WeSpire and decided to really focus on um, working with companies to activate their employees in these programs. And then when the UN SDGs came out at the end of 2016, that brought together really the framework of saying, you know, what's sitting under the SDGs spans from, you know, gender equity to climate change to innovation to, um, you know, health and well-being. And that really seems like the the span of programs that we should be able to support in an integrated way. And so that, you know, is how, how the evolution happened from consumer practically <laughs> green to enterprise we aspire.
0: Yeah, it's often how companies uh, unfold in the sense that you start off with an idea and then uh, someone you or someone else sees an opportunity for a broader application and then it it wends its way in that direction it's kind of uh, it's one of the exciting things about being an entrepreneur is that things evolve that way
1: it is it also can be one of the terrifying things about being an entrepreneur because
0: of (laughs) course you know as
1: as we're running consumer sustainability programs then trying to do enterprise programs and you have eight people you're like all right you can't do both things at once which do you pick And I think we picked well, uh, but, you know, certainly it's um, certainly never lost my passion for engaging people in being more sustainable in um, in their personal lives. And I'm really excited about some work that we've been doing in partnership with sustainable brands and their Brands for Good initiative. Um, to help brands enable um, consumers to embrace the nine, you know, what they call behaviors that matter. Um, And it's been really exciting to see maybe, you know, 10 years later, um, the consumer side of this comes back, um, which would be fun to see.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's scary when you have to make a choice like that because you don't know whether the new direction is going to work out as well as the one that you're uh, deciding to... (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: And not everybody wants to go with you. And I think that's just about people and leadership is that um, there are times when you are making that change where you have to, you know, say goodbye, um, you know, to some people who are more vested or who cared more or who felt, you know, more aligned with what you were doing originally. And, you know, sometimes those departures are very easy and you both recognize it. And sometimes the door gets slammed on their way out. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. this is not what I signed up to do, um, you know. And so the people side of that is hard, too. And how you take an organization and a culture through those kinds of transitions. I've certainly um, been to the school of hard knocks on that front.
0: Mm. Well, let's talk a bit more about that in the sense of, uh, I mean, that kind of decision and uh, husbanding that process of moving into a new realm, and some people being happy about it and others not—that's that's really in the realm of leadership. And I, I always ask about uh, when we get into this topic of leadership, what what is impactful leadership? What does that mean to you when you hear that phrase? So
1: you know, I write a lot about the intersection of business and purpose and leadership um, through Saturday Spark, which is a weekly newsletter that comes out um, that really, I, I, I sit in some of the most fascinating topics around this. And, you know, I really think about the idea that It's about whether or not you are having an impact with your business beyond profit, Um, that there is a, um, and that that impact is making the world a better place in some way, shape or form, in addition Mm -hmm. to, not instead of, in addition to driving profit outcomes, and that it is having a positive impact on people. It's having a positive impact on this planet and it is having a positive impact on the communities um, that you most influence, wherever those, those are. And so impactful leadership is, is really saying, how do I as a leader ensure that as we think about what it is that we do as a company, that we aren't just thinking about the process and the operations and the packaging and the pricing and the, you know all the things you're talking about. You're really thinking mm-hmm. about in doing all these things, what are we doing that's helping people and the planet and what are we doing that's hurting people on the planet and how do we mitigate the things we're doing that are harmful and how do we enhance the things that we're doing that are, are beneficial and how do we think about that in a in a holistic, um, strategic and, and often innovative way. Um, so I'll use a, an example Um, We have a client who, when they did that exercise of what are we doing that helps and what are we doing that hurts, um, found that, you know, one of the things that they do, um, you know, is is throw out an extraordinary amount of tires. Um, And so in the the process of setting a very big, hairy, audacious goal about net zero, they had to figure out what to do with these thousands and thousands and thousands of tires that they changed every single month. And there just wasn't a recycling infrastructure to take these tires um, And so, you know, you could decide, therefore, as an impact oriented leader, well, OK, we're just not we're not going to hit that net zero goal um, or, you know, we're going to have to make an exception. We just can't do it. Or you do what this company did and you start a business to actually recycle tires. And you're now one of the largest tire recycling uh, companies in in the country. And oh, by the way, right. it's an incredibly profitable business. Um, that's impactful mm. leadership is when you you see yeah. that constraint and you don't say, oh, I can't because of that, mm. you think differently. And there's such great examples, um, you know, from the closed loop fund, which is um, all these brands coming together to solve the fact that the municipal recycling infrastructure in the U.S. is really challenged and the money, the communities don't have the money to create the facilities, So they've come together to collaborate and set up funding for communities to be able to establish recycling so that their own products can be recycled. Now, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't continue to think about ways they reduce things that need to be recycled, you know, and innovate on packaging and all of that. But certainly as a company, they could tackle this issue of um you know, of, of their their packaging being recyclable, but they couldn't do it alone, you know. And so ca- having yeah. this collaboration and co-creation as an industry to solve it, you know, was really the only way to tackle it. And that's impactful leadership. It's at the system level, yeah. I guess, is, is where you eventually mm-hmm. land when you're re- really innovative about it.
0: Yeah, well, nobody has impact alone. And the collaborative aspect just comes out of naturally out of wanting to do something about a problem like that. So rather than moving away from it by saying, well, we can't solve it, or, well, we can't be in that business, if we are doing this, and they move on to something else, instead, just kind of embracing it and, and, uh, and finding a solution Um, that really brings in the collaborative element in a huge way. So I love those examples. You and I are so on the same wavelength as far as that, as far as uh, impactful leadership goes. We've we've talked about cultures of other companies, and I'm really curious about what the culture of WeSpire is. How would you describe it?
1: I think you know there's there's some words that really pop when we talk to our employees about what they love about WeSpire, and some of those words are helpful. Um, we have a very strong helpful culture, and and at helping each other and helping our clients, and and just helpful is a key word. Another word that you you see and hear people mention constantly is flexible. Um, we have been a you know, flexible company in terms of what time you work, where you work, how you work since day one. Um, And maybe that was because I was a, a, you know, a, a mother with young children, but I, who, you know, would work hard, but I wanted to be able to work at the times that I wanted to work. And I felt like if you built a culture of trust that, you know, you don't need to log in, you don't need to log your hours, you don't have to have set hours, you don't have to all show up at the office, you know, we trust you to do the work you need to do and to deliver your goals. And that certainly helped us particularly when um, you know, COVID hit and we all moved remote. We didn't really miss a beat because we were so used to people working remotely and, and moving and being flexible. I think the only challenge is that we also are, a culture of people who really like each other. And so I certainly miss seeing my team in person for those that worked sure. in the Boston office with us. Um, but we have tried to create a really strong, you know, collaborative, um, and connected and transparent, um, culture by having, you know, an all hands, every Monday, um, social connections and meetings that, you know, you show up to if you want to, but you don't have to, um, you know, offsites, we just had our first, you know, all team virtual offsite. We've always had them in person and we would fly everybody in mm-hmm. for a, a day um, or two sometimes um, for these. But, you know, we did it virtually this year. And, and, and you know, it was, uh, it, I would always prefer them to be in person, truthfully. But, sure. um, yeah. but you know, it, it accomplished what it needed to accomplish, which is to make us all feel connected not just to our mission and what we are trying to accomplish in terms of our mission, but also our strategy and our tactics for getting
0: there. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Well, and and many companies have obviously had to make some major shifts and pivots and are there other ways in which your business has pivoted or has it pretty much rolled into the virtual realm with uh, a minimum of disruption in terms of your focus?
1: Yeah, so how we do our work has been pretty seamless, Um, you know, uh, but what we do certainly um, had some big opportunities to be helpful, back to one of our core values, um, which, Mm -hmm. and so that was the um, ability to create programs quickly that would help companies get employees to do the behaviors they needed them to do in COVID, which was everything from social distancing and healthy habits you know, uh, to engaging kids at home, um, managing stress and anxiety, you know, everything that was kind of smacking people in the face in COVID, there was just a lot of behavior change that had to happen. And so we created um, about nine different campaigns um, and put them into the library for our clients to be able to use tied to COVID. And then the other thing we did is we um, we opened up. We'd never done um, free trials before. It's it's a, a pretty extensive Strategic process to bring your programs onto Respire. It's usually a four to eight-week implementation process where we're, you know, helping you set your calendar and your strategies and your tactics and goals, you know, and then mapping those onto the platform. Um, but we said, you know, what, mm-hmm. we're we're in an emergency, so. We also gave everybody the opportunity to use WeSpire for free for three months um, and to help them with COVID and extended that for even longer for most people. And we had a lot of companies sign up, um, some that we've been talking to for you know a while, and they were already in our pipeline, but a lot of new companies. And what was gratifying, since we usually work with large companies, is we had a lot of small companies um, who just needed something. You know, They didn't have anybody to do this expertise. And then... Um, we, we were able to do something similar for racial equity and justice and created a whole suite of campaigns around um, increasing allyship, reducing um, reducing implicit, building awareness and reducing implicit bias, um, and even a pretty hard-hitting one around anti-racist workplace, um, and, and again, made that uh, content available at no additional cost to both clients and non-clients, figuring it was our contribution to you know, this moment in time that we've all found ourselves at and, you know, um, yeah, it was expensive for us to support all of it, but it was really, you know, gratifying to know that, while well, I can't make a $10 million donation to one of these organizations. I can donate our expertise for how to, you know, get people to do the things that you need to do to keep them safe and keep them feeling, um, you know, safe at work.
0: Yeah. And which is really at the heart of all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So important. Well, Susan, I'm, I'm finding myself at the point where I have to choose between uh, two questions, and I, I want to honor your time. I, uh, I'll, I'll ask you one more thing before we get to our rapid round, and that is you, you've hit the 10-year mark for We Spire, and this year's your 10th anniversary. And in my experience, that's where I uh, started to get restless and wanting to change things. Is that true for you? Or is, is your experience of the 10-year the mark completely different?
1: I think it's completely different. But also that is in large part because in some ways I've really had three different phases of We Spire and the one we're currently in is by far the most exciting. Uh, you know, there was the, mm-hmm. the consumer-facing Practically Green, which was just, you know, all the things that the first, you know, two years of any startup are from, you know, all-nighters and craziness and, you know, all of that. Then there was kind of the enterprise sustainability piece, which was really rewarding and exciting, but I didn't see that it was going to scale broadly. Um, And now what I realized is we've built something that every company in the world probably needs at this point in time. And, you know, the question is just how how do we... How do we get everybody there? You know, um, nobody has an impact platform that is bringing these programs together and activating people and demonstrating the business impact it's having. Nobody's done this. They are very siloed, you know, platforms out there, but we've, we've managed to pull it together. So I'm just really excited about what the next 10 years hold. And it also feels like the most important 10 years, certainly of my life, um, you know, we as a society have to do something to ensure that we drop carbon emissions 50%, and we have to do something mm-hmm. to ensure that this world is more inclusive and equitable for everyone. And we have to keep ourselves healthier. You know, um, and you know, we we are we are one of the tools um, that can be the solution to these challenges. And you know, so I feel like the next 10 years is an opportunity to to really. You know, be that foundational tool that, that helps to bring about the world that we all want to see.
0: Yeah, it's an exciting place to be. That's great. It is,
1: absolutely. Not an ounce restless.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Other
1: than uh, to see my friends and family, I'm very restless about that. I would like COVID to be over sooner rather than later.
0: Uh, I know, you're not alone there, and that's for sure. No. Well, I, I always wrap up these interviews with uh, three rapid round questions about impact. Are you game? I am game. Great. The first question is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact?
1: That it's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, And that gets back to intent is there. Um, But moving from intent to action requires a very, very deliberate, focused, consistent process.
0: Love Mm -hmm. hearing that. Um, second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most?
1: Continuous learning. Uh, I just see that, you know, every day, week, month, year is an opportunity to keep learning. And if I hadn't been committed to continuous learning, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And so the, you know, um, I was not a sustainability expert in any way, shape, or form 10 years ago, and I am now, and (laughs) that, you know, I, you know, um, I certainly, uh, you know, started to participate in diversity, equity, and inclusion activities during my career at the New York Times and, and eventually was leading there, but, you know, learning how to really Create behavior change around inclusivity, and you know knew nothing about psychological safety until I read all the work that Google had done uh, around it, and so that that commitment to continuous learning, I think has been really critical not only for me personally but for the company.
0: yeah, that's great. Well, the last question is what's one piece of advice or an insight you'd share with another business owner who's asking themselves, how can I have more impact
1: to really step back and to find your why, you know, um, and and usually there's a story as to why you started your business um, that may yeah. have gotten lost in the years since and go back and really ask what problem was I trying to solve that ultimately was going to make the world better. Um, and there mm-hmm. is something usually in every person's founding story. Um, and if you, if you can't find it, Talk to those who love you, and and ask, what do you think um, my legacy could be? Um, What do you see that matters to me? Um, And then there's a really good exercise that one of our speakers last week said, which is, you know, write your eulogy. Um, What do you want Mm -hmm. him to say? You know, Um, and that's a there's some you know good good exercises online on how to do that. If you're still struggling to figure out your why. Um, you know, go through a a very deliberate process to figure it out. And I think when you Mm -hmm. find your why, you will find a way to connect your business to that why is is very easy and very straightforward.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. That's a great idea. Well, Susan, thank you so much for being here today. It's been such a wonderful wide ranging conversation and you're such a great advocate for bringing um, sustainability and, and social impact uh, to business and, and helping them do good in the world. So I really appreciate your um, insights and the conversation we've had today.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it immensely as well and have a wonderful day.
0: Great. Thank you. Me too. Before we go, I'm just going to ask how, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
1: Susan at WeFire.com. Email me personally.
0: Well, thank you for that. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. It's been been an adventure, certainly. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at WorkAlchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment it's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, Join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.